Hello and welcome back to the Fitness Unfiltered podcast. It's been a minute, hasn't it? It has been a minute. A few minutes, maybe. Many minutes. I don't really get that saying, actually. I don't know why I, I think said it, it comes from rap. It's been a <laughs> rap. I know rap well, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, no Dan today. But we have just recorded a very exciting podcast all about pain, really. Yes, which is something that I think that we can all relate to and hopefully people will get something out of this because I think especially in the world of fitness, like we've all experienced injuries, um, but we also have like periods where we are embracing pain, like during exercise and stuff like that. And it's interesting to talk a little bit about the physiology of pain, well, actually more the neurology of pain and well, the neurophysiology of pain. Um, and we've got a really, really excellent expert to talk to about that today. Tell us more about him. His name is Edward Baker and he is a strength conditioning coach with vast amount of experience and now a lecturer in strength conditioning and rehab. I want to say Gloucestershire University. Yeah, University of Gloucestershire and he's done he's had a lot of experience with neuro rehab as well so significantly experienced in the world of pain so it was great to uh, to learn from him and hopefully people listening will learn a lot about it as well. So without further ado, here is this episode of the Fitness Unfiltered podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fitness Unfiltered podcast. We are back after quite a long break, but I'm very excited to have Ed with us today. So do you want to just start with like a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your interests and a brief intro into what we're going to talk about today. Sure. And thank you very much guys for having me on. Uh, super excited. So um, I'll try and give you a short potted history. Going back about 15 years, I was a personal trainer. I was really into my sport at that time, did Muay Thai kickboxing and I was taking it very seriously and I wanted a job that allowed me to train and just, you know, be around fitness. So I was a PT, worked for a corporate gym then had my own business but I wanted to work with athletes. So I went back to uni and did a master's in strength and conditioning. And when I graduated, I was fortunate enough to get a job working in elite sport and then spent about 10 years working in high performance sports. So I've worked in a number of different teams, traveled a lot and really threw myself into that whole world. Uh, and then um, have a young family. So when my second child was on the way, I wanted to travel less and work uh, less unsociable hours. So um, I worked in a neuro rehab clinic, actually ran a clinic for two years. And I was working with people with spinal cord injuries. So they'd had a very long period in hospital and they'd now come home and were kind of rebuilding their lives and getting independence. And so I was responsible for kind of intensive physical therapy uh, to kind of maximize their function and independence. I did that for a couple of years. And then last year in January, I took up a role at the University of Gloucestershire as a strength and conditioning lecturer. So phase three, I guess, of my uh, career is kind of as an academic now. Um, but I have a website, um, edwardbakerperformance.com and uh, I have a blog there and some remote coaching. So I'm, I also have that as another string to my bow. That's awesome. So just before we get into probably more the pain side of things and rehab side of things, which sports did you specialize in for strength and conditioning? So um, quite varied. Yeah, well, in my first 
roles at a university that supported talented young athletes and then kind of university students who are also athletes. And so very, very varied. Um, everything from wheelchair basketball, uh, England women's football, rugby, squash, swimming, tennis. So many different sports and different age groups. Um, after that, I was the lead SNC for Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby. And that kind of kicked off a relationship that continues to this day. So I still am involved in that sport and coach a couple of players who are on the GB squad. Um, I was then head of SNC for England Netball for a couple of years, which was a great experience working with like a really dynamic team sport. Um, and then throughout the time, I've worked with some track and field, so sprinters, and then also some boxers and mixed martial artists, because that's kind of my uh, passion, I guess, personally, and the sports that I competed in when I was younger. And uh, so I'm, I'm now doing a PhD, biomechanics PhD, really into mixed martial arts and combat sports. And that's kind of a, a passion of mine and something that I'm hoping to work in over the next few years as part of my university work. Wow. Keeping busy then. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be busy. <laughs> uh, one question I have is I think a lot of personal trainers have an idea that they want to work with elite athletes. Yeah. What, I guess, like, what advice would you have for someone who maybe is a personal trainer at the moment and, and potentially wants to follow a similar career path that you've followed? Mm. My advice would be, if that's what you really want to do, you should do it and you shouldn't be put off by the jargon of the strength and conditioning industry. So while I'm a very proud member of the strength and conditioning fraternity, uh, like any organization, there are lots of um, silly long words that they use to try and disguise simple concepts and make them inaccessible. And in fact, it's coaching, you know, it's being with clients, athletes, whatever you want to call them, and taking them from A to B and improving them and making sure that they leave better than when they arrived. So that is the biggest part of it. You know, if you can't communicate, create relationships and create change, you know, on a physical level, get results, then you won't be a very good PT or a very good strength and conditioning coach. So you can add layers of complexity and kind of academia, which is important in terms of how you analyze like force or energy systems or, you know, periodization and programming. But you can learn that stuff. The fundamental thing is it's working with people, it's coaching, it's making them better. And so I would say go for it. So you think there's more similarities than dissimilarities between coaching like general population as a personal trainer and coaching elite level athletes? Uh, the, what are yes, the key differences are, that you They would... are more the same than they are different. Um, I guess the key differences are... You, you do have to wear a number of hats, but I imagine I've been out of the PT game for a long time, but obviously a lot of your clients' goals will be around fat loss, body composition, how they look and feel, not necessarily how they perform. That might be a, a beneficial side effect. So obviously the nutrition side, behavioral change, all that kind of stuff, I imagine would be very important in terms of the PT offering. With the strength and conditioning coaching, it's very performance orientated. So it's, you know, you're, you're looking at a particular sport. Let's take netball, for example. Lots of tall 
female athletes landing on one leg over and over again. Okay, so you, you need strong hamstrings, really, really strong lower body, protect against those knee injuries. They have to be very fit, repeated high intensity efforts. You have to have a great strength base for that. So you've got to figure out, okay, how, am I, how can I best prepare my squad to meet the demands of eight games with five days or whatever it might be at a tournament? And then can I monitor them year round and check that they're meeting their targets? So it's very results driven. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts, you know, what did it look like? I'm in a T-shirt and shorts in a gym or on a track with people, right, getting them to do stuff. And that, I think, the, ab the ability to build rapport that you get as a PT is really important. It transfers really well. Um, because in terms of elite sport, the senior international athletes I've worked with, I was not their first strength and conditioning coach. I was like the 15th or the 25th, it's just another guy in a tight t-shirt saying lift that weight, right? So you've got to do some, you've got to be able to relate to them and be able to have an impact. And that comes from your communication skills. And you do learn that, I think, working as a PT because you have to relate to so many different people. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. On to what I really wanted to discuss today. So sure. a couple of months ago, you sent me a video which blew my mind a little bit. And essentially the crux of it was, pain isn't as simple as just a response from an injury no. and that actually that isn't always the way pain works and then I guess like do you want to elaborate on that because I don't want to interpret things completely wrong sure yeah um I mean I'll I'm happy to kind of talk for a bit and then I could just keep going but you can and just stop me when you want to ask another question but yeah sure and I, I think like Mike will be interested in this as well like obviously you work a lot with people suffering with pain whether that's chronic pain or acute pain yeah. um and it would be really interesting to see how much some of this transfers into like less I don't know spinal injuries but more like chronic fatigue syndrome sure. or chronic pain issues so yeah honestly go ahead yeah and I'd love to hear Mike's feedback I mean he's a doctor so I'm conscious that you know, I better, I better have all my information squared away. Um, oh no, I'm not at all. Not with me. I'm a terrible doctor. I <laughs> don't believe that. <laughs> well, um, so firstly, a pain is pain is real. Uh, it's one of those things you can't deny it, right? Everybody has experienced it. So, whilst I'll talk about the brain's involvement in pain, it's really clear. I'm not saying it's all in your head. I hate that phrase. There's no such thing as all in your head because your head and your body are they're the same thing, right? But to understand, or my understanding of pain, it's just a conscious experience, right? It doesn't exist outside of consciousness. And you can think about if you were to have a surgery and undergo a general anesthetic, you're not asleep. It's more than that. You don't wake up when the surgeon is operating on you. Why is that? Well, it's because you're not conscious. And in fact, the drug that puts you under interferes with the synapses in your brain. That's the communication that happens in the brain and would produce the output of pain. Whereas if I was just asleep, for example, and you, you know, hurt me, poked a piece of Lego into the bottom of, of my foot, which I think is the most painful thing yeah. around the house, I would wake up, I'd become conscious. So you can think of it like the stimulus, what we call nociception, that's the communication of something painful or harmful, can exist outside of consciousness. But pain itself is mediated by the brain. It's an output. 
It's an output of the brain and it can be mediated and interpreted in error. In other words, your brain can produce the pain output when it doesn't need to. It can do that in error. And there's no pain center, if you like, in the brain or anywhere else. It's a complex um, amalgamation of different things. So it's immune cells, chemical messengers and exchanges and nerve expression all together that produce a sensation of pain. And it's, it's also interesting, maybe for your listeners, that pain and fear share the same neural circuits. They're effectively the same thing when it comes down to a cellular level. And so I guess you're talking about like how pain can be there without a tissue injury. And yes. then aren't there conditions, I'm sure both of you will know this more than me, but where people can't feel pain? And is that a similar, like the synapses aren't working? Yeah, so, well, in the if you have a spinal injury, for example, um, you know, you break your back in a car crash or a fall, if it's what's termed a complete injury, in other words, uh, there are no signals descending from the brain past that point in your back or ascending from below it. You then can't feel your legs, for example. So you would not be able to feel a painful stimulus. Although if the, if the stimulus carried on for long enough, for example, a pressure sore, you, there would be a physiological reaction. You, eventually your heart rate would rise and you would feel your blood pressure change and you would feel ill. That is normally what happens to people in that situation. But yes, you would not feel uh, the response because the communication in the spinal cord and brain was interrupted. You know, the, the signal could not jump over the lesion in the cord and it couldn't get to the brain. And therefore the brain couldn't register the harm even if the harm was being done. So that's another way, that's kind of looking at it from the opposite way, yes. Yeah, just because as you were saying, like not to just say it's all in your head because then people think, oh, it's not real. As in the point is it's always all in your head. Like that's how it works. Mm. Yeah, I mean, your head is part of you right? yeah. and your brain and spinal cord actually working as a system. That's your nervous system. And your spinal cord's very clever. Like it does all sorts of things on your behalf without executive control, like walking, for example. Walking is stored at the bottom of your back. That's where the program for walking is. It's not actually in your brain. So, and, and all sorts of other things, you know, like the doctor hitting your knee with a hammer to check your reflexes, that shortening of your muscle in response to uh, a stimulus, that happens at the spinal level. So you, your spine is very clever. Um, did you want me to carry on a little bit about kind of pain sensation and movement? Uh, you can't. So the another thing that blew my mind about this video was yeah. at the start when you were talking about the study that showed that physiotherapy was less effective than just learning about yeah. how pain works and your own central yeah. nervous system. Yeah, that's that wild. It's quite amazing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. And it's um, clearly not, this is not a criticism of, of all physios there are tremendous you know physios out there that fully embrace this and, and work with it but this was a study in the lancet so that's a that's serious science kind of real science um that showed you know 30 minutes of reading about pain so basically reading the stuff that we're talking about today plus two follow-up conversations telephone conversations to kind of check the person's understanding were more effective at reducing chronic pain 
um, than 20 sessions of traditional physiotherapy. Now that might be because whatever they termed traditional physiotherapy, you know, the, the way it's quite passive. And we still see this a lot now. You see this with the whole allied health industry. Something's wrong. So you go to see someone, you turn up and you say, I'm broken, fix me. And you, for 20 minutes, you're there. They do something to you, then you leave, right? And usually you have to keep coming back because it doesn't work. Um, so this, this is the passive nature of it rather than um, taking control of it, learning about it and, and understanding more about it. Yeah, I guess it's the same like kickback that people have to therapy. Like they would rather have a drug that's going to stop them feeling a certain way than spend yeah. time working on the reason they might be feeling that way. And yeah. I kind of see this like example as like therapy for your chronic pain or I guess what we were discussing and in, in my situation was that I'd had surgery, the problem was gone, but I was still experiencing pain. And one of the reasons that might have been is that I was anticipating pain. Absolutely. And, and that those, and you were discussing how the neural circuit was there for pain and I need to sort of rewire that. Yeah. And is a part of rewiring that kind of accepting and realizing that there might not be a physiological although the pain is real like we've said like there's not a physiological reason for the pain anymore maybe i could talk about rewiring because i use that phrase in the video to you but you know when people hear that your listeners might think well does he actually mean wires yeah. so what that means is uh, we talk about something called neurons that fire together wire together and that's the basis of learning that's why you'd practice anything that you wanted to do so um, I don't know whether you can play, can you play an instrument, a musical instrument, either of you guys? Mike? No, but it's a very good example, so still use it. <laughs> All right. So um, for example, if you can't play the piano and you hear piano music and you were having a brain scan at the same time, then the bit of your brain that would show more electrical activity and light up, if you like, is the bit concerned with you hearing, which is common sense because you're hearing something, that's the stimulus. But then if you went and had just five hours of piano lessons, now you listen to piano music, even if you're sitting still, not only does the auditory area light up, but the bit that moves your hands and fingers starts to light up too. Because what you've done is wired, in inverted commas, those neurons, all right? So now in response to the stimulus, which in this case is hearing the music, your body is involving that area of the brain that also coordinates your hands and fingers. It's learned that, and that's neurons wiring up. And so when you have a painful experience and you know pain and fear get encoded much faster than um, difficult things like a golf swing or pleasant things like music, and that's for an evolutionary reason, they're encoded very rapidly and very, and very strongly as well. So if you've hurt your back, you know, you've, and whatever phrase people use, you put your back out or you've done something, um, this goes into your memory straight away. And so now when um, you're in a similar situation or anything that triggers that, anything that's similar about that, if it's a movement or even an environment that you were in, you can now anticipate and feel that pain again. You can produce that pain response. And it can get so bad that people uh, who think about or see a photograph of a painful part of their body can ex will experience pain even without being touched 
and swelling amazingly like you can produce a mechanistic response and you can make a limb swell by thinking about a pain wow. uh, which is wild isn't it um, and so that's chronic pain that that is the pain that persists beyond the window of tissue healing you know and you had a certain as you said the problem's gone right and you pass that window we know that the disc is getting uh, nutrients to it. The muscles are healed. The wound is healed. Like the tissue healing, the cell turnover has happened. Why are you still getting the pain? And it's because that alarm system's on. It's because those neurons are still excited and they're all firing together and they need to be re-educated. Yes. And so what's the process of that rewiring or re-education? That's a great question. Uh, the process is breaking the cycle of harm and movement, re-education via movement. So the way your, the brain represents your body to you, for example, it has a stored map of every bit of you and it continually updates that map and it updates it in light of what you do, how you move and the result, the sensations that you get. And it can be updated therefore in error. Um, you know, people often think that if they've got a painful limb, uh, they imagine it as much larger than it actually is. And if you get them to look at it through a minimizing lens, it reduces their pain. So what you need to do is couple movement uh, with sensation and you have to fly under the radar. So you re-educate yourself by doing really basic gentle movements that don't trigger pain but that involve the painful sight so that could be as simple with a back as you know a massage that's very gentle where someone is also saying to you right well how many fingers have i got in the back now is it one two three and you learn to discriminate tactile sensations at the sight of pain in other words you're building coordination coordination and a good representation is basically the opposite of pain when it's really painful you can't bear anything to touch that area you just don't want to know it becomes foreign to you well the way you get around that is by re-educating that actually look it's safe this part of my body is okay it's not going to break this movement feels good i can do it and i feel great afterwards and so it's staying under the radar and discovering new movements that feel good okay but this is a bit of a different question you might not have the answer to this another example you gave was if you've had like a particularly painful breakup or something and a song reminds you of that period of time can you rewire that and would you do that by like exposure to that song in like happy situations or mm. is that song just ruined forever what a great question so i'm not a psychologist but i understand that on a, and uh, maybe you know, my... oh has he paused or have we you're on mute oh i think he's frozen <laughs> i um i was gonna say i've done this a lot with songs because i i associate song memory really really strongly with a lot of um like bad memories and stuff so i whenever that happens and i really love a song although it's really interesting oh, oh wait and then Ed, I'm Go so on. sorry, but you um you paused for about a minute there. Oh, did I? All right. We didn't, where, where did didn't I... Get, we didn't get any of the answer. You said you said you're not a psychologist, but and then it's <laughs> sorry. 
All right. Yeah, I'll start again. So, uh, yes, I'm not a, my caveat. I am not a psychologist. I have not had that training, but I understand that uh, a memory, like you said, a memory that is emotionally upsetting. It has uh, a large involvement with your amygdala, whereas your long term memories is, your, is in your hippocampus. And you basically need to move the file from one to the other. And that is the um, crude way of saying uh, that's what you're trying to do. The objective of talking therapy, for example, is to is to revisit the harmful or painful episode and to take it out of an emotional response and kind of store it in your in your long term memory. So to answer your question, yes, you need to revisit it and you need to enjoy that that song in some way. Like if, if you play the song and it still makes you cry and it's more than a year after the breakup or whatever it was, I, I would say there's some things that you possibly want to work through there and i don't have any clinical training in this but i want to give you one example from somebody i know um an athlete i work with uh who is called kylie who's a wheelchair rugby player and a double paralympian and a superb person and a great motivational speaker so uh she won't mind me telling the story so she broke her neck diving into a swimming pool when she was 18 years old okay so her injury occurred in the water you can just think about how frightening that is. Um, she's now a uh, full-time wheelchair user. She has a C5-6 injury, so a very high cervical spine injury. Uh, that means she's about 90% paralyzed. She frequently enjoys swimming okay, in the water. So she is able to get back into the environment in which she got received her injury, a life-changing injury, and she has no fear of that environment. In fact, she enjoys it, does it for pleasure. And she's one of the most well-sorted, put together, positive people you could possibly imagine. And I think that that is a big reason why, right? That she's been able to kind of confront this, turn it round and, and associate um, good sensations and positivity with it rather than fear and negativity. Yeah, it's so interesting I, I recently heard someone say and I don't know what truth there is to this so big caveat that we, I mean we often talk a lot about like post-traumatic stress or yet yeah, like the negative impacts of something awful happening but they were saying that more times than not people experience or also experience post-traumatic growth mm. and that actually that's almost like a trigger for growth in some way um, Mike, do you want to discuss what you were saying about um, music? Yeah, I just saying, like, I've always had a really, like, I, I know a lot of people do, but I have some really strong emotional and memory type ties to, to types of music. And I think it is definitely exposure related. So, for example, if you've got a song that was um, popular years and years ago, and you haven't heard it for years and years and you hear it now, it will take you back to that time straight away. But if it's like, like what I find really interesting is how this changes with things like Christmas music and Christmas songs. And when things become more popular or less popular over time, how they no longer remind you of Christmas 1994, they remind you of Christmas or they remind you of other things because you're having ex like repeated exposure in different situations and different emotional states. But what I do think is really interesting and comes back to that is I think that we're quite resistant to that in the sense that 
if that song brings back awful memories for you, you don't want to start loving it again. You yeah. just don't like that song anymore. And usually you'll turn it off and you'll change it and you won't necessarily want to go through that experience. So you just stop liking the song anyway. So you're, you're unlikely to be sad that you can no longer enjoy that song because now actually you hate it. It, yeah. it now is so strongly associated with something that is that is a bad memory that yeah. you don't necessarily want to. And I think that has a lot of parallels with things like trauma. So I think that what you're talking about with post-traumatic stress disorder versus post-traumatic growth, I think that trauma can lead to growth. But if the, if the trauma is too strong, that you're not necessarily going to deal with it and, and process it in the same way and you're you're then repressing that trauma, then that's when when often it can end up leading to disorder. And again, another caveat, also not a psychologist, um, but I, I think that that's just a common a common theme yeah. when it comes to unpleasant things. We just we're, we're more likely to avoid them than we are to, to accept them and, and try and grow from them, I think. Right. And I don't think necessarily that everybody should go and make a playlist of the top 10 songs that make them cry, and, you know, and go that, through though. the night with it on repeat until they wrote like if it's not holding back an area of your life you could just avoid that song you know unless of course you know somebody spontaneously played it at a job interview or something like that and it and, and, and it put you in a terrible it's my mood, kryptonite but, uh, exactly <laughs> but uh, if it's something that is impacting your life you're scared of lifts or whatever then you probably should expose yourself to going in a lift you know maybe just go in and walk out again and get you know get comfortable with it and uh, so that you can overcome that for sure yeah and I guess this can be extrapolated into like other areas of life like a lot of people are scared of carbs because they've limited them for so long and maybe they've sort of bought into low carb diets and been mm -hmm. told that that's what makes them fat and that's what's going to give them diabetes and like there's a whole fear around them and actually like you're saying like going into the lift or just like a small exposure to carbohydrates and then realizing oh i didn't put on a load of weight overnight oh nothing bad happened and then slowly sort of increasing more and more that's maybe another way i certainly with regard to kind of injury rehabilitation and getting back to it i i, I really advocate getting back to training like as soon as possible and obviously it does i don't mean doing the exact thing that you did to injure yourself you know if you hurt your knee squatting or um, you know, I've had I've had plenty of injuries over the years. Uh, you know, you tear a bicep or a pec. Like, okay, don't load up and go for a one rep, one rep max again. But you need to get back on the horse, right, as soon as possible. And you should stay mobile, and you should stay motivated, and you work around it, and maintain your routine and all that stuff. That's really important with athletes. You know, I've been there when people have snapped their ACL and God knows what else in their knee and it's potentially a career-ending injury it's happened in a big game this is an enormous emotional bomb and straight away there's questions running through their mind am I ever going to play again like is this it like I don't have any qualifications can I get a job like it's catastrophe after catastrophe and that happens with a back injury like I've had a back injury you have I'm sure you've been there right you start thinking my god I'm, I'm not me anymore yeah and it, what was so weird is it's like it is it was almost for me like a little bit of an identity crisis like absolutely. a lot was piled on me because having always exercised like that was a huge outlet for me and then when that was taken away and also the amount of drugs I was on and not being able yeah. to really like control my body or it was like loss of independence like I couldn't drive they're all like quite small things but like added up it did seem like a, a huge thing so right. I think don't realize like it's not just 
the pain of the injury it's like how it makes you feel in other areas of your right. life and I think I don't know it just made me think that another you asked me about um you know how do you go through this process right of, of kind of getting rid of the pain and another massive thing is about changing the language and again it sounds like a small thing but it's really important words are the things you think in so the words you use are really important and uh like you you know when you get like I've had this you get an injury and you're kind of it challenges your identity because you think I'm the person that trains every day and I can't do a burpee or sit up because my back hurts. So I'm not me, but actually you change it and you say, I'm the person who takes control of this injury, figures out how to rehab it and keeps going, you know, and even saying those things to yourself and, you know, significant others in your life is actually really powerful, has a massive impact on how you get over these things. And not using um, silly things like I've slipped a disc, like they can't slip. Um, you, you're not broken. You will, you will be fixed. You know, you can fix yourself. And so really using positive language like that is a massive, a massive win. Yeah, I think other people, like if you're listening to this and you've maybe never been injured as well, like how other people talk to you as well <laughs> can be huge, like without meaning to, obviously, but someone would be like, well, what are you going to do? Like, as if, like, what are you going to do if you can't train anymore? And I'm like, it's not really what I need to hear right now. But, but yeah, like, I guess it forces you to be positive. But another consideration for other people, like, if you're talking to someone with an injury, that kind of language, probably not very helpful. <laughs> I, I mean, this might be somewhat controversial. I'll try not to be too controversial in your podcast. But there is some research that shows that effective treatments for people with chronic pain you know, really long, long-term pain uh, shows that, you know, the therapist informs their significant others or the people around them not to be solicitous to, their, to them complaining about pain, to be distracting or ignoring. And an example, I know, and an example of this might be, um, you know, when you've got little kids and one falls over and bangs their knee, to kind of look round, and then they see you, mummy or daddy, and then they cry, all right? Don't modelly coddle them. Get up, keep going. Or, oh, look at that. Is that a bird over there or something? And I think a lot of people might frown on that and say, oh, you, you're teaching them to repress their emotions. No, teach them to be tough. And it's the same with pain. It's not about pretending it's not there. It's about not being helpless and powerless but taking control and saying, I can do this. I can carry on. You know, I will beat this. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So to, to wrap up, do you want to just touch on like how, I know you used Aristotle as an example, a quote from him, but like how we kind of think about pain more now in, in like modern medicine and yeah. in comparison to maybe what, what we know pain to be. Yeah, I think I, I used, um, I referred to Aristotle, so that's a long time ago, and then uh, uh, Descartes. So Descartes was the guy who said, I think, therefore I am. And so his way of thinking, we call that Cartesian, and it shaped a lot of the way that medicine is, and indeed the whole way that we look at the body. It's mechanistic, and what that means is, you know, there's an input followed by an output, so... Uh, an example for pain is, you know, if you tickle someone, it, it feels nice. If you scratch them, it, it's a bit less nice and a bit more nasty. And then if you poke them with something sharp, that's pain. And therefore, it's on a spectrum. And whatever the, out, the input is, 
the output's going to reflect that, you know, on, almost on a dial like a machine. And of course, that isn't the case. And what flows from that is our obsession with scans and everything else. Now, you do certainly, it's good to get a scan to see what's there. And the system relies on them. The surgeon won't touch you unless you've got one. But the problem with that is you could take 100 people off the street and run them all through a scanner and see all sorts of crazy abnormalities and bony growths and spurs and degenerated cartilage. They might not have any pain. The tissue may not be the issue. Uh, and so just looking at the scan and saying, all right, well, if we change this photograph, your pain will change. But that It's not the case. It's, we need to recognize, as Aristotle did, or, or he um, supposed it's a complex emotional phenomenon. And if it's going on past the window in which you've healed up physically, then it's to do with your, your brain and uh, what you tell yourself, the language you use, the movements you do or don't do. Um, and so you, you need to break the cycle of harm, get under the radar and get moving again in a way that feels good. And would this translate again to an extent and I know that none of us are complete experts here but I have quite a few clients who struggle with chronic fatigue syndrome whether that be like cancer related fatigue years down the line or chronic fatigue for another reason is the way you talk to yourself I mean I can't imagine it would do any harm but again with that like I a lot of the time it's like there's a big emphasis on tracking fatigue levels and really focusing on how tired you feel or how much energy you have and actually mm. is maybe taking a step back from that potentially useful possibly i i really don't know about chronic fatigue syndrome you know i've uh, I'm, i've done a lot of reading research and personal experience with pain particularly with back pain and a lot with prescribing exercise for injury rehab and i'm kind of comfortable talking about that chronic fatigue syndrome is completely outside my my educational or area of experience and so i'd be it'd be yeah, poking yeah. in the dark you know i don't know um and it's not something i've ever experienced myself and so it's very difficult for me to kind of imagine that but certainly you know i'd want to be if if it were me or somebody i knew and they were asking me for help you know i'd be trying to look at everything so what about your diet you know, what can you do there? Is there anything, can that be improved now? Sleeping habits, your work, personal life, if you have a job, what about your, do you have a romantic relationship? How's that going? Do you have friends? What's your social network like? Do you have old hobbies? And then can you do exercise? How much, what type, you know? And then also, yeah, how are you thinking? What is the narrative in your head? What do you tell yourself? And can you write things down to give yourself more perspective or, you know, to feel grateful about all those. I try and kind of attack each one of those, but that would be a scattergun approach, you know, based on kind of first principles. I have no yeah. training in chronic fatigue. I think that what is interesting about something like chronic fatigue syndrome is that like, even, you know, as a, as a, as a doctor, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question either. And I think chronic fatigue syndrome specifically out of many of the things that we talk about that we don't fully understand is one of the things that we really don't fully understand. Um, and it's really interesting, actually, because a lot of the former ways of, of managing and, and, and sort of generally accepted ways of managing things like chronic fatigue syndrome have 
been recently um, debunked quite a lot as well. And I think that's that's the, the nature of something that is essentially a syndrome. It doesn't have the same pathology or, or, or even necessarily pathology at all in different people. It's a collection of symptoms. So it's often caused in, by different things. And that's what makes it so complex to treat, which is why you won't just have a chronic fatigue syndrome doctor treating that person. Mm. You'll have an entire multidisciplinary team that's trying to figure out the best way of managing things. So like an example of what we're talking about is I remember actually recently um, a GP got into quite a lot of trouble on social media for talking about um, graded exercise exposure for chronic fatigue syndrome, which I think used to be quite widely considered as a positive thing and is now quite widely considered as not a positive thing for chronic fatigue syndrome. And I remember watching him get like crucified on social media and thinking, wow, I'm well glad that I, you know, it's sort of, it almost sounds like common sense. If you're really tired, maybe try doing a little bit more every day to try and improve. And I think the response was like, geez, why don't we think of that? You know, because in reality, it's a bit more complicated than, than what we imagine it to be. And that's why even the diagnostic criteria, like if, if a patient comes to me and says, I think I've got a chronic fatigue syndrome problem, the level of assessment that needs to be done for that person to get a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome is enormous. Like the number of questionnaires that have to be filled in, the number of assessments that have to be done, the criteria that they have to fulfill just to be referred to the service um, is, is fascinating. So we, we talk about, and it's, I think it's, it has some, again, some parallels with chronic pain is we talk about chronic pain and we talk about chronic fatigue, but it has such a wide different set of meanings to, to different people and, and different yeah. sets of causes as well. So yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. I'd, I think it's it's something that is not many people are able to really answer that question. I don't think. Agreed. Okay, so to finish up, and this is also going to be quite a hard question because I know generic advice is going to be really hard. It's going to be very person specific, and will make sure that people have the link to your your website if they want any specific rehab, especially for back or spine injuries. But is there anything we can do? Because I think with so many of us sitting down most of the time and a lot of people have experienced back injuries to some degree or another that we could do either a if we have or what we think is a back injury or even if we just want to prevent back injuries like are there certain movements certain habits that might be useful to everyone great question yeah so um I'll stay with backs and then there was one other tip that might might help with just kind of general sort of surgery and other things but um if you a lot of people like you say have experienced a back injury a lower back thing you know particularly if they do weight training or energetic sport and it may not be during a particular you know their, their best ever um deadlift but it might be something silly like oh i went leant over the back of the car to pull something and i felt my back go and I think it's important uh, to relax, okay, to, to do what you can to relax. So when that, when that happens, you get a muscle spasm and your whole body goes tight and you are in, in fear. You know, you're like, my God, what have I done? Like, I can't move. It's the same with, it happens in your neck too. So whatever strategy is available to you to help you relax kind of acutely, whether it's that moment or that evening, so, you know, if your partner can give you a bit of a massage, a glass of wine, you know, ibuprofen, if that works for you. Um, I don't personally try and rely on any of those things, but whatever works to kind of just pull down the alarm system, take to tone down the alarm system. 
and then you need to do some gentle movements and if it's in the case of a back you know being on um, hands and knees we call four point you know that's a very safe and stable position for your spine it's not loaded and you've got four bases of support you know both hands and both knees and in that position you can start to mobilize your back you know by bending it like um you know you'll hear people like a cat or a camel and you can bend it sideways as well uh, like a shark uh, and you can really start to mobilize your hips and back and what you're doing when you're doing that is you're saying look my back's moving and it doesn't hurt and you're kind of allowing those muscles that have gone into spasm to contract and lengthen um, to get rid of a, kind of all the waste products that are going to build up when they're contracting half for so long and to free everything up and get the joints moving uh, and then some yeah, straightforward, people can Google hip mobility or sofa stretch or 1990 for hips. All those things will produce a ton of results on YouTube. Um, and you can do simple kind of floor-based hip mobility exercises. Uh, I wouldn't do the whole, you know, bending forward, trying to touch your toes or rolling back and hugging your knees. That puts quite a lot of stress on the back. I would look at kind of gentle movements that, that involve the whole spine. And uh, don't be afraid, movement is your friend, go for a walk. Walking is fantastic for the lower back. So go for a brisk walk in a beautiful place outside in a green space, you know, and just get, and be, don't be afraid of, of movement. Um, you won't break, you'll be all right. You know, I think you can, you can tell yourself those things. That's really, really important. Um, what was your second part of your question? Are there things we should be doing like exercises to prevent back injury? Yeah. Like a generic. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I am biased because I'm a strength and conditioning coach, but I think everybody should be doing resistance training. Everybody should strength train. Whether you do that with barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, your body weight, everyone should lift because it makes you harder to kill. <laughs> yeah. It, COVID will have a much harder time with you. Age will have a much harder time and so will everything else, life in general, right? When you're strong. And in fact, you age in direct relation. Sarcopenia is aging, losing muscle mass. So the more you hold on to muscle mass, you're gonna stave off all the all-cause mortality. And that, that's, a, that's a scientifically, that's proven, right? All-cause mortality. Diabetes, yeah. you, get, you won't get that because it's metabolically active tissue, insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease. It even helps your brain. So. Everyone should be strong and you should, you should squat and lunge and deadlift. Uh, you don't have to break records. You don't have to grind yourself into the ground. You should do it, you know, uh, low volume, but you should lift one to three times per week. And you should be able to handle your own body weight in a number of planes. And it has such a high yield, you know, beyond just looking and feeling good. It's, it's, it's such a high yield activity. Um, so yeah, you should strength train and you should, you know, don't neglect your abs. You should do abdominal training, torso training, you know, however you want to do it, it doesn't really matter, but do some and you should move, you know, and whether you like static stretching or whether you like the kind of more popular ground-based things that people are doing now, if you like yoga, Pilates, it doesn't matter. You should move, you know, move your hips in particular, uh, mobile hips, spare the spine. So, um, lots of hip mobility and uh and keep it varied as well you should challenge your body and do new things your body loves to do new things and learn new things so if you haven't done forward rolls and simple gymnastic things for a long time you should do those 
um, you know, try a different exercise class, try a different routine, just train with nothing but kettlebells for a month, you know, just do different things. And that is a great way of avoiding stagnation, but also avoiding, um, you know, overdoing it and getting kind of an overuse injury. Mm-hmm. Something that I read recently that I, again, kind of, I guess I'd never thought about it, but when we die of starvation, it's loss of muscle mass because you start breaking down your muscle tissue and then you can't you don't have enough amino acids Mm. and that's what causes death by starvation Mm -hmm. so literally like you are harder to kill on so many fronts by at least maintaining some muscle mass yeah that's right and if you you know if you're very unlucky you have some kind of terrible wasting illness or uh, you have severe burns or um hiv you'll be given um drugs that steroids basically that uh, allow you to maintain muscle mass while you're on bed rest yes so yeah um, the more muscle the better and I, I think as well you know for people that are concerned about being too muscular I mean I don't think that really exists if you're natural <laughs> there's anything so much to do again like you said earlier I've been real- trying to be too muscular for 10 years uh, me too and I still haven't got there I think you know it's also graded progressive and reversible it's like if you're particularly if your female clients go and start you know doing some weights they're not going to wake up the next day and look down at their arms and be like oh my you know where the hell did that come from like it, it doesn't happen like that I don't know Ed so, I'm pretty good <laughs> you probably are the exception yeah uh, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. If you could just remind everyone where they can get in touch if they want to know more. Sure. Well, thank you very much as well. So my website is edwardbakerperformance.com. I'm on Twitter as uh, at Coach, um, and edwardbakerperformance on Instagram as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. How do we normally end the podcast? I've not done it for so long. Do we stop? We say bye. Yeah. Okay. Well, bye. Bye then. Right. Let me stop recording.